Gender is a complicated issue, especially now. But why spend an hour talking about a highbrow topic when we can talk about Julie Andrews playing a woman, playing a man, playing a woman, Rodney Dangerfield forcing his stepson to dress in drag to win a girls' soccer tournament, and a bunch of drag queens performing ABBA songs? Every movie that didn't qualify for my episode on LGBT psychopaths is here in a much lighter episode called Genderbenders. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from evil dolls, to murderous twins, to aborted baby toxic waste monsters. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Good. How's it going? Good. I love how we open everything with like, how are you? It's like, <laughs> we've been sitting staring at each other for hours. <laughs> I know. I know. You got how here you last are. night. I know exactly how well you're doing <laughs> and what's going on with you. But hey, good to see you. Nice to see you too, Tom. That's great. Yeah, you yeah. look great. So we were going to talk just a little bit about what else we did with the podcast in this almost year that we've basically taken off in yeah, between five true. and six. And we actually did some stuff. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't no, just we like we something. sat around in our ass. I mean, granted, we did sit around our ass we a did. lot of it. it but we nice. did some stuff too, yeah. Yeah, so the first thing that we did was we did an interview with a fanzine. It's on efanzines.com from listener Chris, and it's yeah. called Drink Tank. But and it went went really good. We actually really liked Chris, too. Yeah, we were Chris like, this great. guy could be our friend. Yeah, yeah. He is basically doing an episode-by-episode episode review of every episode we've ever done. He got the first half done, and that is up, so we'll post it on the site. But again, it's efanzines.com, and it's Drink Tank. We got pretty good reviews. Some of them, he was like, this one was trash. And we were like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. Trash, yeah. totally fair. Yeah. But we the, agreed with everything I mean, I agreed said. everything he said. But th- honestly, he put in way more effort than I feel like we deserve. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So, he yeah. really, it wasn't just like a couple sentences. Like, there's like pages of yeah, like broke review. That shit down. It's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, if so, if you get a chance to take a look at it, that's yeah. cool. We also did an interview for a Joe Bob Briggs tribute. Yeah, um, we did. That came from listener Hansi, uh, and she put together about a 20-minute kind of documentary tribute to Joe Bob Briggs, which we posted, but I'll repost again when this episode comes out on Twitter. It's really cool. A lot of celebrities in it, including us. <laughs> yep, yep, including us. Yep. yep. So thanks, Hansi, for letting us be part of that. It's yeah, great. It was really cool. Yeah. So that's what we got going on. That's what we did. And then we've got this whole book that I r- ruined <laughs> yeah, by not writing book. it. Yeah, yeah, this book you'll never read. Mm, so. I, I'm, I still really want to do it. Once I tell you about the giant project, you're going to be so excited and you're going to realize why we had to kind of put it on hold but we'll get on the book the book will happen one day one day maybe we're gonna be like all right we're in our 80s but the good news is season six is happening right now right now so thanks to tom i won kept it alive that's all that matters
I won. All right, so tell me about gender benders. Go, go with it. This episode has been a long time coming. I did LGBT psychopaths in season three, and that one we focused around LGBT people that kill people or were at least capable of killing someone. That was right. my criteria for being a psychopath. And we talked about some specific characters that didn't really fit the trope, especially in the movie The Crying Game and then also the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Today, we're going to focus around these type of characters as it pertains to gender, not necessarily sexual orientation, definitely not psychopaths, although there is a little bit of crossover. Okay, cool. There's a lot of territory to cover today, so I'm going to omit a few things. Today, we're not talking about men or women playing different genders if the movie doesn't address it. So Jack and Jill, remember that one with oh, Adam yeah, Sandler? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or any of the Medea movies, even Hairspray with Divine playing both male and female roles. Drag or gender isn't a topic in any of those films, and there's been a million characters that play different different genders. It's just not enough to make it into this episode. Sure. We're only talking about gender benders as a plot point. So like Amanda Bynes and she's the man. She pretends to be a man. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, obviously. I'm also not going to talk about gender swapping, which is a pretty hot topic right now. That's movies like Ghostbusters, the remake with all women, Ocean's yeah. 8, the remake of Overboard, which why does that exist? Yeah, no shit. Where women are playing the male roles in remakes and sequels. Not talking about that. Mm-mm. Those are just casting decisions. That's not a gender bender movie. No. So what makes a gender bender movie, Tom? I found a lot of lists of best gender bender movies, but very few articles on the actual topic. So I'm going to attempt to define the topic today in this episode. But I will say that there's many different ways of constituting a gender bender movie. Okay. The most basic is where a man plays a woman for comedic value and deception, like in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Of course, women play men in movies, but that's much different than the way that men play women. Right. Usually women play men to get them into a position where only men are allowed, like in Disney's Mulan. But then there's also drag queens and kings, which fall into a different category. There's also male and female body swapping. There's transgenderism. There's intersex movies, all of which we'll talk about today. In addition, I'm not going to do this chronologically because there's too many subgenres on gender bending. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go topic by topic. Oh, good, good. Yeah, messing with the format. I like that. Yep. The first film that I could find that was a gender bender movie was actually a silent film about a woman dressing like a man. So that's where we're going to start today. Women dressing as men. Oh, good. Okay, cool. That movie is called I Don't Want to Be a Man from 1918. <laughs> it's a German film and it was pretty ahead of its time. It's about a, a rebellious young woman. Her name is Ossie and she's very boyish and she lives under her uncle's care. But he gets a new job and she gets a new guardian who is a mean doctor. This causes her to rebel further and so she dresses up like a man so she can drink and smoke and party. While she's out one night, she runs into the mean doctor and the two get wasted and then they actually kiss, even though he thinks he's kissing a man. Well, that's pretty bold. It's pretty bold. Once she gets home and starts to change back into a woman, he storms in and realizes that she was pretending to be a man and they fall in love. So basically, he was attracted to her as a man, but then when he finds out she's a woman, he's kind of like, that's fine too. (laughs) He thinks it's a gay kiss. Right. You know, and he even says in it, he's like, let's not tell anybody about this, (laughs) you know? And I was like, ooh, cool. That guy didn't give a... He was like, I'm going like, to get laid. I don't give a, I don't give a fuck. fuck. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Another earlier film from 1935 was Sylvia Scarlet, and that was starring Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. It was about a bookkeeper who embezzles money from his job. To avoid arrest, he decides to travel to England and start a new life, although he initially decides not to take his daughter Sylvia, that's Catherine Hepburn, with him. She convinces him to go along, but she's going to disguise herself as a boy named Sylvester since the authorities wouldn't be looking for a man and his son. Okay. Sylvia ends up 
falling in love with some guy and has to decide whether to come out as a girl or not. This film tested really poorly with audiences. <laughs> and Catherine Hepburn, although I wrote Kepburn, that's actually not bad. Yeah, Old I love Catherine yeah. Kepburn. And Gary Grant begged the producers to shelve it in return for them making their next movie together for free, which they did. Wow. And it ended up being one of the last movies that Hepburn made before being named Box Office Poison, which is, you know, a big thing, especially when you talk about somebody like Joan Crawford. Right. It's now regarded as being a really, really good movie, but just very, very ahead of its time in the 30s. They basically shelved it. Huh. Another film that dealt with women dressing as men was Victor und Victoria from 1933. <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead 60 years and talk about the remake with your favorite set of tits, Julie Andrews. Indeed. This one is a little different because in it, Julie plays a woman that wants to be a cabaret singer but can't get a gig. So because she's tall and thin and kind of manly looking anyway, she tricks the cabaret into thinking she's a male in female drag. Gotcha. So she plays a female dressed as a male dressed as a female. Email. It sounds pretty flimsy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Victor Victoria was a huge hit, mm-hmm. namely because of Julie Andrews' performance. Blake Edwards was the director, and of course, it had these big musical numbers by Carrie Mancini. Oh, baby, won't you play me the jazz hot, maybe, and don't ever let it end? I tell your friend it's really something to hear. Julie Andrews even won Best Actress at the Golden Globes. And then that movie kind of paved the way for the next year in which Barbara Streisand became the first woman to ever win Best Director at the Golden Globes. And that was for the movie Yentl from 1983. Yentl. Yentl is a weird little movie. It is a weird little movie. It is. It's about a Jewish girl played by Barbara who's taught Jewish boy stuff by her father. When he dies, she takes her dead brother's name and dresses like a man so that she can do boy Jewish stuff. Yeah. She ends up marrying a woman, but they never consummate the marriage. She also ends up falling in love with another male student. And also, it's a musical. It's one of Barbara Streisand's most memorable films, and it made a lot of money, but Mm -hmm. it was also kind of a joke at the time a little bit. A lot of people made fun of Yentl. Yeah, yeah. Barbara Streisand was even nominated for Worst Actress at the Razzies that year, even though the movie was, you know, considered a hit. Yeah. Yeah. I do not like Barbara Streisand as an actress. I feel like she's super overacty. <laughs> I was just listening to this duet that she did with Donna Summer, the, the Enough is Enough. And like, I was just thinking the same thing. Nobody told Barbara Streisand that this wasn't a show tune. Like, <laughs> it was like, this Dial is a back. disco song, Barbara. Yeah. Like, yeah. why are you like, it's raining, it's pouring. <laughs> Jeez, calm down. Yeah. This isn't Fiddler this on the Roof. Donna it's a fucking Summer disco song. song. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dial it back. Shit. <laughs> but anyway, back to overacting Barbara Streisand. <laughs> We're done with her. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Much less prestigious of the women dresses men movie movies is just one of the guys from 1985 oh, i was hoping you would talk about this one. <laughs> this is one of those dumb but also kind of great like locker room boobs and balls and close call 80s movies, right right yeah like porkies and summer rental in just one of the guys a high school girl named terry wants to be a journalist but thinks people don't take her seriously because she's an attractive girl mm-hmm. she dresses as a boy so she can see if her articles are taken seriously as a boy but the funny thing is, is they're not they're like right. they're like you're a shitty writer
writer, kind of. It's kind of funny. It's funny. <laughs> there was a Western gender bender called The Ballad of Little Joe from 1993. Oh, wow. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's where a woman dressed as a man in order to be a cowboy. It was a very small indie film, but gained some controversy for a different gender bending reason. In the movie, female Joe, dressed like a man, takes on an Asian worker named Tinman. He quickly realizes that she's a woman and the two become lovers. But throughout the film, Joe continues in the traditional male role while Tinman takes on the traditional female role. Many people noted that this was a very forward example of the feminization of Asian men in American and European culture. This is a topic way too highbrow for us to discuss, but I pulled a quote that I thought was pertinent to today's episode from the critique of the movie. And that was, quote, not all men benefit equally from a patriarchal system. In this film's case, a white woman may embody masculinity and obtain more male privileges than an Asian man. Oh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, that is interesting. Speaking of Asians, there is also Mulan from 1998, where Fa Mulan, daughter of aged warrior Fa Zhu, impersonates a man to take her father's place during a general conscription to counter a Hun invasion. I never saw this movie. I just copied and pasted oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw it. It's, yeah. it's good. It's I'm right. sure. I'm sure. And Shakespeare in Love from 1998, where Gwyneth Paltrow dresses like a man and won an Oscar for it, which I thought was the first time a woman playing a male character won an Oscar, but I was actually wrong. Okay. There's a 1984 Peter, do you say Weir or Wire? Weir? Weir? I think it's Weir, yeah. Yeah. A movie called The Year of Living Dangerously, where casting called oh, for a, a half-Asian small person. The role was cast, but Weir thought he and Mel Gibson didn't get along, so he replaced him with a four-foot-nine female actress named Linda Hunt and basically put her in yellow face. Needless to say, this has all kinds of implications racially, sexually as well. But, you know, obviously, when talking about that compared to the Ballad of Little Joe, that they were like, we need a little Asian man. So we're going to cast a woman to do that in yellow face. And of course, she went on to win Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars that year. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, Gwyneth, but there was a cross-dressing female little person racist yellow faced Asian imposter 15 years before you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well done. (laughs) Slate read that in one try. I didn't even have to redo that. I read that whole sentence in one take. That's amazing. And the last movie I want to talk about is the not-so-classic Amanda Bynes vehicle, She's the Man, from 2006. (laughs) This movie has a warm spot in a lot of people's hearts as a pivotal teenage movie, but I need to tell you, this movie is terrible. I've never fucking seen this movie. I just watched it, because I'd never seen it before. Uh I was a little too old for it when it came... I was 26 in 2006, so... Instead of exploring any actual gender issues that would have been relevant even in 2006, it focuses on clothes, boyfriends and girlfriends, near misses, and a lot of Amanda Bynes trying to act like she thinks men act. <laughs> There's a lot of people falling down and getting bonked on the head with things. It's very stupid. It sounds like a Hallmark movie. Yeah, it's really bad. This was originally an idea about a retelling of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night in the vein of, if you disguise it enough, then maybe teens will go see it, a la Romeo and Juliet, you know, right. and Leonardo DiCaprio, but the, the movie is very, very bad. Oh, I get it. So somebody saw 10 Things I Hate About You, and they're like, let's make another Shakespeare thing right. with teens. Correct. And what could go wrong? Uh-huh. Yeah. This. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's switch genders and okay. talk about, get it? Wow. Men dressed as women. 
So remember in my intro that men dressed as women in the movies are usually for comedic value. Yeah. The first movie I found is called What Happened to Jones from 1926. I couldn't find this movie anywhere, but I found a synopsis. Mm-hmm. On the night before his wedding, a young man plays poker with friends. When the game is raided by the police, he escapes into a Turkish bath on ladies' night, ending up disguised in drag and with difficult explanations to make. So obviously this is a kind of hilarity ensues type of movie. Around this time, most male comedians would dress and drag at some point since film was all sight gags before sound yeah yeah of course charlie chaplin the three stooges even your favorite second build actor lon chaney dressed up as a woman in the movie the unholy <laughs> three from 1925 mm, nice. and lon chaney, and lon chaney. transvestite <laughs> carrie grant actually did a scene in drag for the movie i was a male war bride who marries Anne sheridan while in post-world war ii germany He's able to accompany his wife back to America under the War Brides Act, but how can he be a bride if he's married to a woman? He must dress as an army nurse in order to get on the boat, and the results are disturbing. Really? Going to show you. (laughs) Okay, great. Good God. Fire my agent over that shit. (laughs) This was only one brief scene in the movie, but it also had one of the biggest tropes in men to women cross-dressing, which is the male dressing as the female is extremely unattractive. Yeah, and not convincing at all. Right. And that always gets an additional laugh in a screwball comedy. Right. You know, just how ugly they actually are. And we love to laugh at unattractive women. I'll talk more about this later. Ouch. I'm going to skip ahead to the movie Some Like It Hot from 1959. Oh, gotcha, yeah. Because it's not only the template for almost all other men dressed as women comedies moving forward but was a huge runaway success with critics and the mainstream audience Mm -hmm. have you seen this one a long time ago yeah yeah some like it hot was director billy wilder's screwball comedy with jack lemon tony curtis and of course marilyn monroe Mm -hmm. it was not intended to be an amazing movie it wasn't even approved by the Hays code and yet went on to be nominated for numerous golden globes and oscars and is now regarded as the best comedy ever made really Mm -hmm. i didn't know it was still labeled as that it is huh It's set during Prohibition, where two band members working at a speakeasy witness a murder and have to go on the lam. They dress as women and join up with an all-female touring band where they both set their sights on Marilyn Monroe. How could you not? Right. She's the ukulele player, by the way. Oh, yeah. As they travel and get comfy with her, they have to be her friend while dressed as women, but they're also trying to win her affections when they go out of drag and, you know, try to to seduce her as men. Yeah, yeah. In the end, both of them must once again go on the lam and Marilyn and ends up with Tony Curtis. He's been courting her as a man on the side. And a rich mama's boy is in love with Jack Lemon as a woman. But when Jack Lemon finally reveals that he's a man, the mama's boy replies, no one's perfect, which is considered <laughs> to be one of the best last lines of a movie ever written. Right. So obviously, all of the men dressed as women movies so far, including Some Like It Hot, are comedies. Women dress as men to get ahead. Men dress as women to make fun of women and sometimes gay people. There's a reason why every man dressed as women comedy has lengthy scenes of tripping, falling in heels, messing up putting on makeup, a ball or a boob gag, right. uh, you know, pantyhose ripping. And then, of course, the voice change, which is usually just higher and sounds like a cartoon character. It sounds yeah. like someone trying to act like the way that they think that a woman I'm a would. woman. This Hello, is what women I'm a sound woman like. Now. Yeah. It's like, that's not it's what it sounds like. Okay, yeah, great. You're a monster. So that would change. And I'm going to skip ahead now to 1982, which 
was the year that Tootsie came out. Oh, yeah, Tootsie. Yeah, yeah that's right. Tootsie, as I'm sure everyone knows, was an instant hit from the beginning with a star-studded cast and Dustin Hoffman playing the title role. Mm-hmm. In the film, Dustin Hoffman is an established actor, but he's kind of a pain in the ass, and he can't really get a role big enough to fund the play that he wants to direct and star in. He gets a tip for a gig on a soap opera and auditions for it, but as a woman named Tootsie. He, of course, gets the part, but because he's such a pain in the ass, he won't play the role the way that it was written, and instead takes on a more feminist role in the normally patriarchal soap opera industry. He auditioned for the female lead on a soap opera and became the hottest new actress in America. And you know what? No one knows his new identity, not even the girl he's madly in love with. Soon everyone will know that she's Dustin Hoffman and he's Tootsie. He becomes an overnight sensation and hilarity ensues. But instead of trying to make her as stereotypically feminine as possible in order to A, make the audience laugh, or B, try to blend in in order to succeed, like most of the women as men movies, manages to do both, but also neither. Hmm. It's the least stereotypical cross-dressing movie up to this point. Yeah. Not that it doesn't have its tropes. Dustin Hoffman is not a particularly attractive woman, and that was a huge stereotype at the time. Right. That all feminists were ugly women that couldn't get a man. Mm -hmm. Also, it does send a man in to change men and women's minds about women, which is a little troubling. But for a 1980s gender bender, this one is very, very watchable, even now. Yeah. In between Tootsie and the next movie I want to talk about is the British comedy Nuns on the Run from 1990. You remember this? <laughs> I one? remember that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I never saw it, but I, re- I always did. remember it's not it. Great. Yeah. It's one of the only movies where men dressed as women don't rely on ridiculous costumes and wigs and makeup, Mm-mm. you know, because they were just wearing nuns' habits and, you know, were just kind of unattractive nuns. Yeah. Nuns, yeah. yeah. But the biggest thing to happen to men dressing as women since Tootsie was Miss Doubtfire from 1993. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Mrs. Doubtfire was also not supposed to be a huge hit. Robin Williams was probably the most famous comedian in America after Good Morning Vietnam and Aladdin, and also had dramatic roles like The Fisher King and Awakenings, but he could flop too. Yeah. Remember Toys? Oh yeah, Toys is pretty bad. Cadillac Man and even Hook was a pretty big flop. It was a big flop. Miss Doubtfire was based on a book about a recently divorced man who in order to spend more time with his family, unsuspectingly dresses up like an old nanny and learns how to be a great father along the way. Everyone in the world has seen Miss Doubtfire, so I don't think I need to go into all the plot details it's basically the plot of tootsie some like it hot and mr mom kind of all smashed together yeah but it was the movie's treatment of divorce which many viewers really identified with divorce up to this time was a very melodramatic film topic like in kramer versus kramer Mm -hmm. and scenes from a marriage it was really rare to have a movie that was genuinely kind of sad and honest about divorce but it was also a laugh out loud comedy with robin williams and drag right it was one of those formulas that was just kind of kind of crazy but really really worked no, I like that movie. When yep. I saw it. It's still good. It's still yeah, good. yeah. If the 90s had shifted the genre of male to female cross-dressing a little closer to highbrow, the 2000s took it all back with three films. The first being Sorority Boys from 2002. <laughs> Sorority Boys is about three frat boys that pose as pledging sorority sisters to crack a case on embezzled money. Big Mama's House from 2003, where undercover detective Martin Lawrence poses as an overweight black woman in order to get a confession from a Korean mobster. Oh, yeah. Two sequels followed. Was it two sequels? Two. And of course, White Chicks from 2004, where FBI officers played by the Wayans brothers dress up like white women in order to protect two Paris and Nikki Hilton-like socialites. 
All three were extremely poorly reviewed, and at this point in film history, men dressing up as women for laughs or to make women look dumb is kind of a movie no-no. Right. So we've talked about women dressing as men and men dressing as women, but we haven't talked about kids yet. The earliest kids cross-dressing movie I could find was National Velvet from 1944, starring Elizabeth Taylor as Mm -hmm. a horse-obsessed girl that wants to race her horse and prove that he's a winner. When she realizes that the jockeys she and Mickey Rooney hired sucks, she puts on his clothes and races the horse herself. Okay. Of course, there's a boy dressed and posing as a girl because his adopted mother forces him to in the movie Sleepaway Camp from 1980. (laughs) I was waiting for this one. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about it. We talked about it so much, and we also really talked about it a lot in LGBT Psychopaths. We did. So the main movie I want to talk about in regards to kids is Ladybugs from 1992. (laughs) Ladybugs is a Rodney Dangerfield vehicle for some reason and is about a man who, in order to get a big promotion at work, even though I did the research and the math, Rodney Dangerfield was 71 when he made this movie. He's trying to get a big promotion at work. He volunteers to coach the girls' soccer league that the company sponsors. For some reason, this is very important to the boss. So Rodney gets his stepson to be Jonathan Brandis, rest in peace, Mm -hmm. to dress up as a girl in order to teach the really bad team how to play. Meet our new ladybug, Martha. Give her a big ladybug reception, all right? After the game, no showers. Now all the girls are going skinny to be. I'm here to pick up my daughter, Martha. In the car quick these hills are killing me but let the competition beware let them fight let's try to win at something nobody plays the field like dangerfield you keep up the good work this time next year you'll have 10 men under you rodney dangerfield hey dave can you make a women ladybugs all i know is i got a lot of balls First off, this was not a good movie when it came out, but now is one of the most offensive movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's I don't, really worth watching. Oh, I got to watch it again. I saw it and it was just a lame movie when yeah. I saw it. But if it's aged that poorly, I feel like we need to revisit it's this. Poor, it's so, off- <laughs> I've never been so offended All right, give in my one life. Exa- can, can you give me an example? Sh- sh- one course. example. So a few things. One, it's very, very pedophilia. So Rodney Dangerfield is a creepy old man that tells dirty jokes jokes and this is a pg-13 rated movie Mm -hmm. so even though he's directing these jokes to basically his 71 year old audience right the audience for the movie is young teenagers because it's a jonathan brandis movie to them right so it comes off like he's an old man making sex jokes about preteen girls i mean that's what he's doing (laughs) but like there's a completely unnecessary scene where rodney dangerfield goes into a girl's dress shop to help buy jonathan brandis in a wig a new dress and he goes in the dressing room to help her outside the dressing room they close the curtains outside the dressing room there's an older woman you know with her child and behind the curtain rodney dangerfield is like trying to zip jonathan brandis up and having problems but of course you can just see their feet at the bottom of it so it looks like rodney dangerfield is fucking this girl up the ass basically <laughs> and he's like terrible and, and now he, i gotta watch this movie. and he's like boy this is really tight and if it hurts you'll get used to it and oh, like God. stuff like that and then the woman faints right. outside because she thinks Rodney Dangerfield is fucking this little girl up the ass who's actually a boy in a wig. Right. I really want to see this again and be offended by it by, like you are. Because I like it was just boring before, but I guess yeah, in yeah. a new context, now I really want to see this movie and be like, wow, that's fucked up. Yeah. There's also, and I cut this out of the episode for time, but there is also this scene where one of the soccer coaches who's a woman comes up to Rodney Dangerfield and she's like, oh, I'm going to kick, we're going to kick your ass. You know, our team's going to win or whatever. Just normal sport 
sports talk mm-hmm. or whatever. And Rodney Dangerfield goes on like a 10 minute rant about how ugly she is. And he's just like, she's so ugly. And it's the worst jokes ever. You know, it's like, she's so ugly that when she came out, the doctor slapped her, you know, or like, yeah, yeah, slapped yeah, yeah. her mom, his, you know, it's shitty, shitty jokes. Before, yeah. But it's basically like, women are ugly. Women, disgusting women are so ugly. They're all ugly, ugly women or whatever. And you're like, you are a fat <laughs> slot. Like, you are hideous. That's so funny. And you should not be talking for 10 minutes about how ugly this woman is. So it's all stuff like that of where you're just like, this should not exist as a movie. What year was this movie released? 1992. So fun fact, in just two short years, Rodney Dangerfield would actually play a freaking child molesting pedophile incest asshole in in Natural Natural Born Born Killers Killers and get murdered for it. He was great in that role. He was great in that role. Because basically the exact same role that he played in Ladybugs, he just got what was coming to him. Um, right, right, yeah. One, yeah. There's one other thing about ladybugs, which I did look up. So at the very end, the ladybugs are up against this other team, and the other team is really, really good, mm-hmm. you know. And so they have to, of course, overcome all of their issues to to win this thing. Right. But if you look carefully, the other team is all all of the really good players, the ones that are jumping up in the air and kicking the ball or whatever, are all played by boys in wigs. You're not supposed to know this, of course. They're supposed to look like girl players. But so they couldn't even bother to get some decent girl soccer players to be in a movie that is supposedly about a decent girl soccer team. It's so wrong on so many levels that then even at the end where they're like, the girls were good all the time and girls can be good soccer players too. They're played by boys in wigs. That's it's that's ridiculous. Bad. Before we move on to drag queens, I want to cleanse the ladybugs palette with the movie <laughs> Mavi and Rose from 1997. Okay, It's a French film that did really well in the festival scene about a little boy that thinks he is a girl. Okay. At the same time, his parents try to accept him, but also change him. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately leads to his father losing his job and needing to move the whole family. It's not a perfect movie, but one that shows gender issues through the eyes of a little child with a what's the big deal type of mentality and the parents and community that try to force him into a more narrow box. Gotcha. Also worth a watch, but in a very different way than Ladybugs. I never saw that. I mean, I knew it did well and got Muffy good and Rose. Yeah, but it's never a lovely movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Different than men and women who dress up as members of a different sex for laughs or comedy or to fight crime or win soccer tournaments are drag queens and or transvestites, although this is probably no longer an accurate term. Not sure what to call this, but this category is for women or men that wear clothes of a different gender because they want to, either because that's who they are or because they do it for their jobs. Yeah. They're not trying to pass as the other gender so they're not transgender. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. One of the really odd things about this topic is that from what I can find, Ed Wood is the first drag queen in movie history. I'm sure everyone listening has seen the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp movie from 1994, but here's a little refresher. Ed Wood was an aspiring film director in the late 40s and 50s, but his technique of shooting as little as possible and then slapping footage together with cheap stock photography and adding a voiceover... (laughs) to make the movie make sense, surprisingly wasn't particularly popular. When Christine Jorgensen became the first male-to-female sex change patient, a Hollywood producer named George Weiss was looking to exploit it on film. Edward really wanted this project because in real life, he liked to dress in women's clothes, especially fuzzy Angora sweaters. Mm-hmm. He starred in and directed Glenn or Glenda in 1953, now considered to be one of the worst films of all time. That's pretty bad. In the movie, Edward struggles to explain to his girlfriend that he's not gay, but likes wearing women's clothes until she finally accepts him. Also a really good watch. If Oh, Glenn or Glenda? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's no. one of those just like, 
what? Well, it's got like, like buffalo running in it, and it's just like it's weird. And Bella Lugosi's narrating that too, right? Yeah, it's insane. It's, yeah, it's yeah. nuts. In contrast, I'd like to talk about The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert from 1994, which, as I'm sure you remember, played on repeat at my house for about three years when yeah. I was in high school. As well as the soundtrack. Yeah. Priscilla is about two male drag queens and a transgender male to female drag queen who buy a bus and drive it from Sydney to Alice Springs for a residency drag show at a big hotel. Mm-hmm. It's part coming of age, road trip, and coming out story with a disco and ABBA soundtrack and an amazing costumes. Mm-hmm. The the movie was really important to the gay community in the early 90s for a few reasons. The first, it portrayed gay men and drag queens as a job, not necessarily as a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought back then that all gay men wore women's clothes and wanted to be women. But this movie showed gay men out of costume rehearsing for shows. They were making clothes, choreographing, performing, etc. And then outside of that, they wore jeans and t-shirts. They were just regular gay people, essentially. This may not sound like it's that big of a deal, but then once the four and a half minute show scene starts at the end, you see the costumes, the staging, the makeup, the ideas, the cinematography. It helped establish drag as not just men dressed up like women lip syncing to songs, but as the huge cultural phenomenon that you see in shows like RuPaul's Drag Race now. Right, right, right. And Terrence Stamp is great in that. Really, I mean, everybody's great in it. As a transgender person, really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of RuPaul, she was actually in the opening number of the next film, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar from Mm -hmm. 1995. She was in full drag as her, do you remember her name? Rachel Tensions. No. That's hilarious. Yeah. That is hilarious. I forgot that. That's and she was funny. wearing a Confederate flag sequin dress as she crowned Patrick Swayze and Wesley wow. Snipes at a drag show. I don't remember any of that. Tu Wong Fu was the weird Hollywood version of Priscilla, and it only kind of worked. For some reason, the drag queens were never out of costume, even in their hotel rooms, probably to make it seem more convincing that the southern townspeople that they befriend would be tricked into thinking they actually are women until the end. Right. But then they like them, so they defend them when the racist homophobic cop comes to arrest them. Tu Wong Fu was number one at the box office for two weeks, but kind of got mixed reviews, and even the gays kind of forgot about it. Yeah. Priscilla was the real winner of the 90s drag movies. It was. Quick it, thing on that. Uh, John Leguizamo was in that. That's right. I remember him being really good in that. I don't know if that's He was true. good. Is it, yeah. Does that still hold him being good? You know, it was like sometimes it's good at the time, and then you watch it, and you're like, oh, that's kind of lame. Everything about this movie should have worked. Patrick yeah. Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo. Mm-hmm. I think I got that right, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In drag that should have worked the drag queens were behind it Hollywood was behind it it was a relatively mainstream movie like the movie should have worked right unfortunately it doesn't it's kind of just a you know it's kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies type of thing fish out of water story right right right. it's like Doc Hollywood with drag queens kind of and everybody learns to really love the drag queens and accept them who they are but it just it has none of the the realness that Priscilla had well and that's the thing too at the time I remember it was constantly compared to that right and fell short just yep. because Priscilla was so much better all across the board yep. that it looked like, and unfairly so, I think, was treated as a, a lesser American copy. Yeah, it was that. kind of like a, it was like the big budget remake. One of the things that kind of brought it to a more mainstream audience is it it got nominated for best costume design, which was kind of controversial at the time yeah, because yeah. the costumes were designed to be kind of cheap looking because right. that was part of the whole thing. Um, and then they won, <laughs> which was a really big they shock. A lot of costume designers kind of were a little miffed by that. Hmm. But then remember that one of the designers showed up at the Oscars and accepted the award wearing the American Express gold 
card dress that she made herself. <laughs> it was a dress fully made of American. I remember and that. And that was such a drag queen thing to do. Yeah, and yeah. so like, and she always makes it on the list of like biggest Oscar moments of all time was a costume designer from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So, yeah. I forgot you know, about it the It really kind of cemented its place in like in Oscar history. There. Yeah. Yeah. And then one more Robin Williams movie that I want to talk about, which was another huge runaway hit was The Birdcage from 1996. Yeah. The Birdcage was a remake of the Italian film La Caja Fall from 1978 and starred Robin Williams as a gay nightclub owner that for political reasons must pretend to be straight for a night so that his son's fiance's Republican father can escape some bad press. Nathan Lane comes in to steal the show by playing Robin Williams' wife in drag when the stand-in doesn't show. At the end, the Republican father must dress in drag to escape the press and everyone ends up liking each other and respecting each other's differences. But instead of talking about the drag scene, I want to talk about the scene where Nathan Lane is trying to act straight, but failing miserably <laughs> to the audience's delight. Do you remember this scene? Well, first of all, I want to say Nathan Lane stole every scene he was in. Oh, in yeah, movie. absolutely. He stole that. And which Robin Williams, who's pretty dynamic and larger than life in a movie, that's a hard thing to steal from Robin Williams. He played kind of, no pun intended, he played the straight guy. I was going to say that, yeah. yeah. yeah and he Nathan did. Lane basically allowed Nathan Lane to like run away with the show yeah that is big but there's this scene in it where they're sitting by the pool and robin williams is trying to you know teach nathan lane how to act straight and it's a minorly offensive now but it's still really really funny it's pretty funny so this scene kind of flipped every other scene where a man or a woman was trying to act like the other gender in order to pass but failing miserably when nathan lane actually a man tries to act like a man it shows the ridiculousness of how we think it is to act like a man or a woman to act like a woman right Meanwhile, The Birdcage was a huge hit amongst the gay and straight audiences alike and was also a huge international hit. It grossed $200 million off of a $30 million budget. Okay, let's talk about transgender movies. Okay. Because this is a gender bender that wasn't really present in movies until much later on in history. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the first real transsexual movie was the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975. Oh, yeah. Where Tim Curry describes himself as a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. So not sure if that makes him a transvestite transsexual or just a transvestite but whatever right there's a scene at the end where the floor show has most of the cast in makeup garter belts and heels it's a little hard to tell whether they're all trying to be women whether they're men dressed as women or whether they're putting on a drag show i think that was kind of one yeah. of the things where gender was such a weird issue in that movie and the movie doesn't really make sense anyway mm. so it just kind of is all like well it's just it's got a very 70s view of it yeah too yeah. and just for to add something to this so i went and saw Rocky Horror not too long ago in the midnight showing again. Yeah. I hadn't seen it since like the 80s. And it's unwatchable yeah, now I bet. At, in a theater because there's 40 years of people trying to fit in as many audience participation jokes lines on, jokes on there. On jokes. Can't hear any of the dialogue. It's just nothing but people yelling at the screen People constantly. trying to outdo each other. Yeah. So it's like... It ruins it was, the it, ru- it ruined it. It ruined yeah. the, even the audience participation just because you can't bring anybody new to it because they don't know what the fuck is the back right. and forth. Anyway, sorry, I just had to add that in. We talked a little bit about The Crying Game from 1992 in our LGBT Psychopaths episode, but Mm -hmm. this is one of those movies that you kind of can't believe ever got made. And then beyond that, got Middle America into theaters to witness the surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In quotes. So The Crying Game was Neil Jordan's IRA, that's Irish Republican Army, theme story where a former IRA member tries to apologize to the spouse of a man he thinks he's responsible for killing, but instead falls in love with her. When they finally go back to her apartment and she takes off her robe, she's a man, and you see an actual male penis. 
which was very shocking at the time for numerous reasons. One is you never saw a penis in a highbrow drama in the 90s. Mm. It was usually reserved for a sexy thriller a la Bruce Willis in The Color of Night <laughs> or any movie with Harvey Keitel. Right. Second, no one knew that Jay Davidson was a, was a man. The movie is shot very darkly. You never see her during the day until after the secret is revealed, and he was an unknown actor at the time. Yeah. So you might have thought something was a little off, but it's an uncomfortable movie anyway. So you probably didn't think it was a gender bender like bait and switch. Mm -mm. And normally the film would kind of be over after that huge kind of third act reveal. Right. But it doesn't really end there. It kind of didn't really have anything to do with the larger plot. And then there's a bloody terrorist finale and comes back around at the end to kind of prove a point so while it's a shocking twist it doesn't come off as cheap like you know in some other gender bender movies that we talked about in lgbt's psychopaths yeah yeah yeah. or the movie homicidal you know but the biggest craziest part of this whole thing is that audiences kept the secret there was no internet back then and no other outlets besides water cooler conversations and newspaper movie reviews and they kept the secret as well this would be impossible right now as we just saw in the remake of argento's suspiria where tilda swinton played a leading role as well as an elderly German male doctor. Did I tell you about this? Oh, yeah, yeah. The producers attempted to lie about it, even creating a fake biography in an IMDb page, but it totally didn't work. (laughs) Test audiences in early trailers knew immediately and could do the background. It was Tilda all along, and the filmmakers admitted it like way before the film opened. Like they <laughs> really tried to pull this off. And I've heard, I haven't seen it, but I've heard she's wonderful sure. as the old German doctor man. But like there was no way they could have pulled this off in the age of the internet, like right, the way yeah. that they did in The Crying Game. The Crying Game managed to hold on to the secret for a good while before snagging six Oscar nominations, including Jay Davidson, but for Best Supporting Actor, not Actress. Right. Which is, who knows whether that was right or whether they should have given him an actress. He does have a penis, so in 1992, they would be like, well, he's an actor, you know? Well, I think he identified as actor. I mean, I think he wasn't transgender. He wasn't transgender, So I think that would have still fit. It would be questionable now. Okay. Maybe correct, but questionable. Jay Davidson only went on to be in one other movie, and that was Stargate with James Spader. Remember (laughs) that one? Mm -hmm. He retired from acting after that, but showed up for the 25th anniversary of The Crying Game looking pretty good and covered in tattoos. Mm. He currently lives in Paris. So, fun fact on that, I talked to some movie people that worked on that and said that they basically had to hold him up during Stargate because he was, like, zonked out on, I think, heroin. So, I tried to find out if there was any record of that because you had always told me that story. And, of course, I love Jay Davidson, you know, back then. And I couldn't find any record that anyone had ever said that. But, I mean, obviously, if if you talk to someone who... Because I looked also because I was like, is this a legit story? Because I don't want to be telling, oh, I heard this if there's not anything to back it up. Right. Even though that's exactly what I just did. But... I don't know. I couldn't find anything further. I didn't know if Jay Davidson had any type of drug problem. It is odd that while he was a hot commodity at the moment, he really only went to do one other Hollywood movie and then disappeared. Well, so this is what I found out while I was trying to corroborate your bullshit story. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He hated acting. He hated it. Okay. He hated the spotlight. He didn't want to do the interviews. People were just asking all of these questions that he... A, I don't think knew the answers to, mm-hmm. and B, just didn't, he just didn't fit into that world, you right. know? So it was like, you know, he obviously was in the crying game. Then they were, everybody was trying to typecast him in roles that were very similar. He didn't, I think, identify as a woman at all. He just had feminine features and he did this movie because he thought it would be fun and it would make him some money. And he right. was very young. 
And then, you know, Stargate, which was a big monster of a movie, it's got terrible reviews. Mm -hmm. He was just like, I don't want this for my life. I don't like this. This is unpleasant. Yeah. And so he just, I mean, and basically just kind of like disappeared. And so I just kept thinking, well, he'll turn up dead from drugs because Tom told me he was a drug addict or whatever. It doesn't seem like that's the case. So so maybe that is a bullshit story. He looks good now. And basically, you know, the the reports on the 25th anniversary was that he's lovely. He answered questions. Oh, great. Well, good, good. Well, I hope that's a bullshit story. I hope so, too. Anyone else out there has any info on that? Let us know. If anybody's got some scandalous Jay Davidson news, please then let us Share know. that, please. Yeah. The major issue to deal with transgender issues was Boys Don't Cry from 1999. Oh, yeah. Boys Don't Cry was the true story of Brandon Tina, a female-to-male transgender person that was raped and then later murdered by two supposed friends after finding out that he was transgender. This is one of the many hate crimes that was not uncommon in the early 90s, and Kimberly Pierce a Columbia student made a short film for her grad thesis that won some awards. She got the funding to make it a feature and cast Hilary Swank as Brandon Tina and Chloe Sevigny as Tina's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. She probably never in a million years thought that Hilary Swank would win her first of two Best Actress Oscars for that story, but that's what happened. Yeah. And thus kicked off the Oscar transgender craze. So Pedro Almodovar won Best Foreign Film in 2000 with All About My Mother, which Mm -hmm. had a lot of transgender themes. Desperate Housewives star and soon-to-be jailbird Felicity Huffman was nominated for playing a male-to-female transgender person in Transamerica from 2005. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. I actually liked that movie. It's not a great movie, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Jared Leto won Best Supporting Actor for playing a male-to-female transgender person in Dallas Buyers Club from 2013. Oh, yeah. Eddie Redmayne almost won Best Actor for playing a female-to-male transgender person in The Danish Girl from 2015. And the period piece Albert Nobbs from 2015, where Glenn Close plays Albert, an Irish hotel Hell Butler, who has been living as a man, also got nominated for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. And while most of these Oscar-nominated roles in movies usually don't end well for the transgender person, as is common in most pre-2010 LGBT-themed movies, mm-hmm. Hedwig and the Angry Inch from 2001 has been one of the only stories that really had any staying power when it comes to transgenderism. Originally a one-man rock opera play starring John Cameron Mitchell, it built and built and then got in a very, very good movie adaptation. Also oh, starring good. yeah, John Cameron Mitchell, and then a Broadway revival starring Neil Patrick Harris, which I actually saw. Oh, yeah. You liked that, too. Yeah, it was great. Followed by Michael C. Hall, Darren Chris, and Tay Diggs. Hedwig probably isn't the best representation of transgender people, but it's a hell of a story if you haven't seen it. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. One of the reasons I decided to do this episode was the abundance of body switch movies out there, especially the shitty ones from the 80s. <laughs> of course, I will only talk about male to female body switch movies. Okay. And I want to start with Carl Reiner's All of Me from 1984. God, I, I forgot all of It was really that. hard to find this, too. It yeah. was one of those things that I think I eventually got from Netflix DVD, but they sent it from the warehouse in alaska or something like dust on it and like all of me was steve martin as a 38 year old lawyer they kept being like well i'm 38 now and it was just like also i'm 38 um (laughs) 39 actually but it it was a huge plot point because it was just like he's all he's 38 he's so old now he's got to figure out what he's gonna do well it's like city slickers like he turns 40 and now he's like oh shit i gotta go wrestle some fucking cattle and i'm like jesus christ yeah and this one i mean the 38 has nothing to do with the rest of the movie like 
So anyway, Steve Martin as a lawyer and Lily Tomlin as his weirdo spiritual dying client. Mm -hmm. She has an Indian guru that is going to body switch her into the young body of her friend played by Victoria Tennant, who you might remember as the evil mother from Flowers in the Attic. Oh, that's right. Of course, no one thinks that this is going to work. Then there's a mix up and Steve Martin gets Lily Tomlin transferred into his body. And now he controls one side and she controls the other side. Mm -hmm. We obviously have mutual control over our body. Our body. It's my body. I'm not sharing my body with anyone. Everybody's going to be real disappointed. (laughs) Now, Edwina Cutwater is dead and living in Roger Cobb's body. You know, you have a great deal to learn about making someone feel welcome. Let's get something straight here. I never liked you when you were in your body. I certainly don't like you in mine. She's spoiling his love life. Edwina! It's Edwina Cutwater. She died today. You did it with a dead woman? He's ruining her afterlife. I can't go in there. That's the men's room. Just shut up and do as I say. I want you out of me by 3.15. Now, where's the swally? Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin in All of Me. I had never seen this. It's a really fun watch, although the gender issues haven't really aged very well. Right. The whole notion of acting like a man on one side and a woman on the other side is that the male side acts normally and the female side acts completely ridiculously. <laughs> and of course, they, he keeps like having to go to trial, you know, like as a lawyer and then and he falls asleep. So now she has to be a lawyer. And of course, she can't be a lawyer because she's a woman, all you right. know. And so <laughs> there's all of these. It's very body comedy you know so yeah, like yeah, yeah. he's walking as a man on the left side but she's controlling the right hand so of course her arm is swinging all out because you know of course women swing their arms out when all walk, over the yeah. place they're when just, they walk they're just crazy and their her pinky is always up and her wrists are flapping and you know right. hilarious ways of acting like a woman mm-hmm. it is kind of a funny movie because they are both so good in it right even though the premise is like women are stupid <laughs> you know <laughs> women can't walk women or do anything can't. Be lawyers, they're women. They're women, yeah. It's terrible. One of the worst reviewed movies of the early 90s is also on this list, and that is Blake Edwards' Switch from 1991. <laughs> <laughs> this was oh. the Ellen Barkin vehicle that was loosely based on the Tony Curtis and Demi Reynolds movie Goodbye Charlie from 1964. Mm-hmm. Rough plot, a womanizing man is murdered by his three female lovers because of how he treats women. He's sent to purgatory, but he's treated women so poorly, so now he has to prove that he deserves to go to heaven. He's given a second chance, but then the devil shows up and insists he is reincarnated as Ellen Barkin and must get one woman to truly love him or he'll have to go to hell. There's also The Hot Chick, where Rachel McAdams as a cheerleader and Roy Schneider as a petty thief switch places because of a curse and a pair of African earrings. But I want to skip that piece of shit and talk about the (laughs) Japanese anime movie Your Name from 2016. Okay. I struggle with anime, but this movie is delightful. So the rough plot, two Japanese teenagers keep waking up randomly in each other's bodies. Hmm. They form a bond that also involves some time travel and a giant meteorite, and it made a lot of money and won a lot of awards in Japan. Huh. I actually found this one on Netflix. It's a wonderful movie. So, of course, it's being remade as a live-action movie in English produced by J.J. Abrams, of all people. Oh, great. Also, the screenwriter is the same guy that did Arrival, which I thought was great, mm-hmm. and also the movie Bird Box, which I also really thought was great. I never great. saw that so one. It could 
actually be good or maybe not. We'll yeah. See. Well, yeah. interesting. Okay. Okay. For the last topic, I want to talk about intersex. Intersex is how we say hermaphrodite now. So okay. someone born with a combination of XX and XY organs. The first film that I want to talk about is called Both from 2005. I've never seen it, but it's directed by Lise Barcelos, who is an actual intersex person. And it's about a woman who feels disconnected from her own body, but doesn't understand why. She finds a photograph of her parents and her dead brother, but without her. She sets out to discover the mystery, which kind of sounds like the boy in the picture is her. Okay. Similar in theme is a movie I have seen called XXY from 2007. It's an Argentinian film about two families, one with an intersex daughter, and whether she'll get a surgical procedure or whether she'll let nature kind of decide what which way she kind of heads. Right. And then there's one of the only comedies to talk about intersex, and that movie is called Spork from 2011. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Spork, spoon, but it's also a fork. Right. Yeah. yeah, I got it. Spork bears a lot of resemblance to the movie Napoleon Dynamite. It's about an outcast girl that we quickly find out is intersex. She only really has one friend, and it's a black girl that teaches her to break dance. Together, the girl and Spork decide to win a talent show and beat the local white mean girls. So it kind of really sounds like Pedro and uh, yeah, Napoleon. Yeah. Pretty much. It's cute, but, you know, it's a little derivative. Okay, that's the last movie, and I don't have a point to make in this episode. I didn't <laughs> want to turn this into a whole gender studies thing. Right, I'm right, not right. qualified to do that, and I frankly, I don't want to. So right. I really just wanted to show how early gender bender movies showed gender identity as being one or the other, and it all came down to the way that you dressed, as evident in the movies I Don't Want to Be a Man, Some Like It Hot, and even Glenn or Glenda. But once the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Victor Victoria started started showing gender movies as a more complex issue. Then Priscilla Queen of the Desert and Boys Don't Cry kind of came out and doubled down on that. We start to see some really interesting gender studies. Some are comedy, some are dramas, some are even true stories, but they all help expand the idea of what gender bending in a film can really be. And will hopefully prevent a remake of White Chicks. Right. <laughs> That's my episode. What do you think? I think it was great. Um, it's interesting. I like that you messed with the format. I also think that I found a theme that comes through great. here. So one, throughout history, actual women get the short shaft, so to speak. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. In this representation, because anytime it's a man who's like imitating a woman... They're fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And so to be a woman and to be convincing as one, you got to be fucking ridiculous. Right. And so that is kind of fucked up. Yeah. But the good side of this is that movies that really care in representing homosexuality or people who dress in drag, and that's part of gay culture, you know, were really embraced, especially in the 90s when you had Priscilla and Tuong Fu and Birdcage and all that. So they were big hits and everyone loved these movies. And so that's great to see. Yeah, there is a mainstream element of drag, which kind of came out of nowhere. You know, you would think that people really wouldn't care for that, but it really kind of worked. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a lot of fun doing it. Again, it was a little bit of a palate cleanser for LGBT (laughs) psychopaths, just because that one was kind of like, gays are all killers, you know, and this one was a little bit more like, there's a lot of comedies in this. So it was fun. It was fun to research and fun to to talk about and might be an episode that I can actually send to my mom. So that's good. I now have maybe three total in all of this. I think I kept my profanity down to the minimum, so. I bleep you, but. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. All right. Thanks. Bye. See you next week. I know all there is to know about the crying game. I've had my share of the crying game. 
Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and resources. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we also share a lot of additional content. If you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. So this episode has been a long time coming. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I laughed. Coming? That doesn't... <laughs> I don't know I, why I laughed I at that. I also laugh at coming references, okay, but that doesn't have anything to do. I no, mean, I both know, it genders doesn't. come, but also both genders breathe. So, like... So you overexplained it, and now the humor's gone. Let me start over, Tom. Please. No, please. You ruined it. That's me.